Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now in northeast ohio nothing is given everything is earned you work for what you have i'm ready to accept the challenge i'm coming to remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james i have returned yet again and not without some assistance we're back again we might be the Akron kid, but we're here in Cleveland. Uh, the river is on fire, and we have a very special guest. It is the man who is responsible for that fire, here to atone for his crimes. Please introduce yourself. You know what? I don't apologize for anything. If LeBron can come back a couple times, you know, what is this, like, my 110th time is very special guest, 111? I am giving LeBron a run for his money, and I apologize for nothing. <laughs> Why is so? Why are you apologizing for coming on here? Is where I'm getting hung up on this. No, I'm apologizing for nothing. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I, what I'm saying is, record. I'm saying LeBron, you know, comes back once, makes it a, a massive deal. I've come back 110, 111 times. You don't see me going on TV to announce my incredible decision to show up for the next episode. Like he does not deserve that level of. Hey, I'm going to stop the world just because I feel like going somewhere that I've already been before. The second time, the second time, it was not an ESPN decision. It was a Sports Illustrated article that was just kind of shadow dropped on Twitter. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah, LeBron's going back. I'll call Jake Adams and have him put an article in the newspaper like, very special guest Xavier comes back to RTG for the 111th time. I'm staying home. I've never left. I, I am trapped within <laughs> these walls. We must remember some more guys. I am going to take my talents to where they are comfortable and have been and will remain. Uh, but speaking of you, Xavier, in the news, is there anything that's making memories for you right now? Yeah, you know what? This is a, uh, a good week to be a fan of the Rangers. Just yesterday, Rangers FC won 5 nothing over Dundee in the Scottish Premiership for their fourth consecutive league win. You know, phenomenal time. Hopefully they can catch Celtic. Then the New York Rangers won five in a row on their West Coast road trip, which was the first time in their history that they'd ever gone undefeated on a road trip of five games or more, which seems incredible for a team that's been around for over 100 years. That's really bad. That's <laughs> really bad for you guys. I I'm watching the game. That can't be right, can it? But yeah, the first time in Rangers history that they'd gone undefeated on a road trip of five or more games. Right now, they're first place in the Metropolitan. Artemi Panarin is 15 points in nine games. Jonathan Quick has a goals against average of 0.41 in three games, which is pretty wild because no one expected anything of him because he was the worst goalie statistically in the league last year, and people didn't think the Rangers should even sign him as a backup. So I doubt that's going to last, but I'm going to enjoy it until then. And last but certainly not least, the Texas Rangers overcame the losses of Adolis Garcia and Max Scherzer, and also being no-hit through six innings by Zach Gallen to win their first World Series in the 63-year history of the team, which is wild when you think about it. 
you, you think they would have gotten one at some point beforehand, but nope. The first one in 63 years, a lot of great videos of middle-aged fans breaking down in tears, never thinking they would have gotten this far. I think the thing that's most impressive to me is that the Rangers went 11-0 on the road in the playoffs, which, according to Opta, is the first time any MLB, NHL, or NBA team has ever won 11 games in a single postseason on the road. That's incredible. Not only to win 11, but to lose zero on the road. That's really impressive. It is so impressive that they did George Bush proud by continuing his legacy of going to places where they weren't welcome and just bombing the shit out of people. Hey, you know what? Houston has oil. Arizona has oil. Go in the places that have oil and taking all their shit. I, I do need to ask, and I don't need elaboration. Just yes or no, James, does it give you any solace no, that the I've, Rangers no. did one? I've okay. never That's... ascribed to this belief. Everyone has like talked about this during their run. In no sport have I ever ascribed to the belief that I want someone that beat my team to experience even a flicker of joy for the rest of their lives. Fuck that shit. I, I mean, look, I'm with you. It's This is going to come out the day after Eagles-Cowboys. And Xavier, as we know from having been to Cowboys Stadium, it is in very close proximity to whatever the fuck the Rangers call their ballpark. I think it's it's Globe Life. I, that's such a stupid fucking name. Hey, I'll um, be at Eagles Cowboys, so if you want, I can I can talk shit on, on some Dallas fans. Well, well, we will have to meet up, good friend, because I will be there, too. Just come to my work's tailgate. Just pretend that you work there. I am a lawyer. That's what, it'll, be like, uh, it'll be like from the Benchwarmers, like, I am 12. I am a lawyer. Might be easier to say you're an accountant since it's me and then 40 accountants. No, see, that's the thing. I, the, the accountants would call me out in a second. If <laughs> They'll you're be expecting an there. accountant. They'll be expecting someone to fake an accountant. They won't be expecting a fake lawyer. It's like, what do you specialize? Oh, you know, legalizations. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of specializations, Diaz, what sports specializations have been make memories for you? Well, there's, there's two things, and I'll start off with an apology. I brought up several months ago on this podcast the fact that Tyson Fury and Francis Ngannou had agreed to a fight, and I said that this was a sham, this was a travesty, this was a joke. It is horrific that Tyson Fury is engaging in what is so clearly just a money grab. And I don't owe any apologies to Tyson Fury. He's a piece of shit. However, I do owe a very sincere apology to Francis Ngannou because it was very much like Apollo's trainer in Rocky one after Rocky knocks him down in the first round, he comes back to the corner and he says, he doesn't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. Francis Ngannou thought it was a damn fight. And for 10 rounds, he brought the fight to Tyson Fury. And with the caveat that, you know, it is the heavyweight division. Technique matters the least at the heavyweight division. Being a big, strong motherfucker that can throw heavy punches matters the most at the heavyweight division. But Francis Ngannou had never fought a professional boxing match in his life. And any reasonable person very easily could have said that he deserved to win that fight. He does lose the split decision, but he gets the knockdown in round three. And... I've seen some people say, like, oh, like, the fight was fixed, uh, blah, blah, blah. Tyson Fury took a dive. How about you take a fucking right hook to the back of your head, and we see what happens to you. 
Okay, you're gonna fucking fall down. Best case scenario, worst case scenario, you're gonna die. That's a very legitimate punch that knocked him down. And also, look at Tyson Fury's face the next day. Dude had a fucking black eye. His shit was swollen. You can't fake that. Okay, you just can't. Just all the credit in the world to Francis Ngannou. I have said it in chats. I'll say it now verbally to be captain the history of this podcast forever. It is the most impressive performance in the history of combat sports. Bar none. Absolutely incredible. And as we talked about with Peter Buckley, if someone's supposed to lose and they do enough to win, but there's even a little bit of a doubt, they're not going to let him win. The only way Francis Ngannou was ever going to win that fight was by knocking out Tyson Fury, and he almost did it. Once it went a decision... We all know they were going to give it to Fury because then they could set up another big fight. You know, Fury's going to do another heavyweight fight and then probably rematch against Ngannou, and they'll sell a shit ton of pay-per-view. But it was still an extremely impressive performance. Maybe next time Ngannou will actually knock him out and get that win. Yeah, so Fury will fight Yushik next, and it's so funny the range of emotions from Yushik because... Like when Fury got knocked down, you see Ushik all of a sudden seeing the millions of dollars disappear before his eyes. It's like, if Fury fucking loses this, the, the, the fight's dead. And Fury's already, it's so funny how two days before the Nganu fight, he was like, oh, we've got a signed contract. And if, 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 if Ushik doesn't show up, then we're going to sue him. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then Fury gets his ass whipped a little bit and he's like, well, you know, my team, we're going to talk, we're going to look at it, you know. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, essentially implying, like, no, we're not going to honor that December 23rd date. What a fucking asshole. Speaking of fucking assholes, the Sixers no longer have one on their roster. James Harden is gone, folks. And I, for one, cannot be happier. You send them out, and look, the picks you get back are nice. But to me, the two main takeaways, first and like most importantly for the actual basketball team, this is a reigning endorsement of Tyrese Maxey as the point guard and the lead guard on this team. We'll see how far he takes us. We're just three games in as we record right now. Game four will be later tonight against the Raptors, I think. But he absolutely has proven to this point that he deserves this opportunity. I cannot wait to see what he does with it. But from a vibes perspective, I'm in love with the Rocco and the Rocco is back. <laughs> I need to inhale the Rocco. I need to ingest the Rocco. I am so happy that Robert Covington is a sixer again. He is maybe not as good as he once was, but he's still going to shoot the shit out of that three ball. In the couple games he played for the Clippers this year, I'm willing to say that last year he was probably just injured a little bit because he looks way springier this year so far. He will make his sixers debut tonight and Look, I'm not going to be there because I'm too busy recording here with you fine folks. But I hope that the people that are there give him a massive fucking ovation when he checks in for the first time. You know, I've, I've always been a romantic. And if it can't be Sam Hankey coming back to lead the Sixers to a championship, what better than his most beloved son, who is not Joel Embiid. It is Robert Covington. If you've read the letter, he spends like two pages talking about how forlorn he was that he agreed to do an interview on draft night and wasn't working the phones for undrafted free agents. And Daryl Morey snuck in and got Covington. Like, of the 13-page resignation letter, two of it is just a love letter to Rob Covington. So the fact that he's back, oh, baby. We, oh, the vibes are so high. 
we thought the return vibe was going to come from Drew Holiday. Like, all of the Drew Holiday signs were there, and really it was just preface to once again being in love with the Roko. What no, Sixers I... power forward ha- brings the better vibes? Is it Roko or B-Ball Paul? Well, the thing is, like, as much as I want B-Ball Paul to be a four, they have, like, pretty much exclusively deployed him as a backup center. And, like, he can be the backup center. But I need that motherfucker next to Embiid where it's like, hey, man, don't worry about protecting the rim. Just run around like a crazy person and get every single rebound and (laughs) get in every single passing lane. I think we will get that later this season. But, I mean, for now, it, I mean, it's, it's Rocco. Right now, it's Rocco. Well, I have to say I've thoroughly enjoyed the Tyrese Maxey experience so far. I do have him on a fantasy team. And I want to take a second for making Reese to talk about fantasy. This is a bit self-indulgent, but I think you'll understand why as I go through it. I did some back-the-envelope math. I tried to figure out like how many total fantasy matchups I've been a part of at this point in my life. And I figured that between various leagues... I've done 14 total baseball seasons, uh, I think six football seasons, three NHL, five NBA, two WNBA. I'm coming out at around 600 matchups, give or take. I think that's what I've come out here figuring. Some years I made the playoffs, some years I haven't. Across all sports, I was in a foot. I am a football league. Doing quite well this year. I'll go ahead and toot my own horn there for a second. Fields of Dreams were six and one going into this week. And tough matchup. We are currently playing without Justin Fields, of course, our totem, if not actually a good scoring member of our team. It's been tough. It was looking like we were going to take actually our second straight loss, the first one, having just been suffered with Justin Fields out going into the final game. I was trailing 157.16 to 142.26. I am the 142.26 there with one player remaining in the entire matchup for me going into Sunday night football. This was Keenan Allen. Los Angeles Chargers. Now, if I scored any more than 14.9 points, I'd win this 7-1 over, you know, the next closest team to me. This is a big matchup. This is an important matchup, Uh, which means if I score any less than 14.9, I'm now tied with this person. And, you know, the whole league has been thrown into chaos after me starting out 6-0. Keenan Allen, to his credit, has a solid game. It's slow early on, a couple small chunk pickups, but it is a PPR league, so... Every catch counts. And he had eight catches this evening for an incredibly nice, I might add, 69 yards exactly. If you're doing math at home, eight catches for 69 yards with no additional statistics in a PPR league is exactly 14.9 points, meaning that I scored, as well as my opponent, 157.16 points. Meaning for the first time in over 600 fantasy matchups in my life, I experienced to a second decimal place, a tie. The second decimal is really what makes it the best. Like one decimal, okay. No decimals, I would expect one tie a year, honestly, if no decimals. But to the hundredth decimal point. In our affiliated baseball league, bang the trash can slowly, It is to one decimal. And there's a part of you that would think, like, we've been doing that. It's been nine years now. Like, you'd think we'd have seen one. And I want to clarify, not only have I not participated in one in these 600 matchups, I've never seen a tie before in a fantasy league. 
in that baseball one, we have a tiebreaker that I set in the rules when we first set it, you know, however many years ago. It's the number of runs a team scores. So even if in a one decimal league it happened, there was a contingency plan. I texted my coworker, the commissioner of this league, the next morning to be like, hey, so what happens? Ah, it's a tie. There's nothing more to this story. It's just astounding to me. Keenan Allen for the best eight catches and the nicest 69 yards of your entire life. Thank you for making memories for me with a two decimal place fantasy sports tie. I'm just glad there were no stat corrections that could have ruined that because if that happened to me, I'd be worried that on Tuesday, there'd be a stat correction of like one half tackle or something or one yard being added or subtracted and then losing or winning by 0.01. Yeah. I've, I've lost by a stat correction before and I've won by a stat correction actually against the same person the only two times it happened in a season, which is bizarre in and of itself. I would rather have this tie than a win at this point. This tie means so much more to me than anything else I could possibly accomplish in this fantasy <laughs> football season. <laughs> it is everything. It's getting me through this. Also the fact that it was such a high scoring tie. Like if you both were like, oh, 81.2, like... An incredibly high-scoring tie. Again, the top two teams in the league by a decent margin. You know, a single player in Sunday Night Football, which means you don't have to do the bullshit of then, like, waiting through Monday. Like, yes, technically Monday Night Football would be more dramatic, but really it just means everyone's sitting on their hands for a while and it sucks. Like, this was... Literally could not have scripted a better ending. 69 yards. Nice. And, and of course, far be it from us to forget. Far be it from us to forget, because after all, that's what we're here to do. We're here to remember. Let's get to it. Let's do some remembering of some guys, but what kind of guys? That was the question that I had to answer for us after Marcos Scudero was inducted last week into the Hall of Guy. And I went through some guys that had, uh, you know, come across before in other categories we thought of. There was this one that I had considered when we talked about less famous with the same name guys who I enjoyed the story of. The problem was that the arguably more famous person with his name is someone I deeply hate. And I didn't want to like give credit to that guy for having any kind of clout, which I kind of do by saying this person's the, you know, lesser known of that name. So I put that away, but you know, he came back to me this week. In fact, the fact that he came back to me is kind of what's going to drive this discussion today. We want to talk about these things that come back, this idea of returning. We want to talk this week about boomerang guys these are going to be guys who, whether it is a team, whether it's a coach, whether it's a city, a teammate, whatever it is, there's some gravitational force in their life that no matter how many times they leave its orbit, something is going to yank it on back. And what is impressive to me about the guy that I want to bring to you all is I don't know if you've ever tried to throw a boomerang. It's pretty fucking hard to do. Like, it's not easy in any capacity, but this guy has the ability to be wielded as a boomerang by so many different individuals. It's, it's the ease with which someone seems to be able to pick up this boomerang and immediately get the idea of how to let this guy out into the world and know that he's going to come back to you. That sort of let something that you love be free. It happens over and over again with this boomerang guy that I want to discuss today. And so guys, I want us to remember, if you will, Tim Thomas. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm on board. I, Very well, much I, on board you know, for that. Sixers legend, Tim Thomas. 
Sixers and Knicks. Knicks legend, legend Tim Thomas. Tim Thomas. Has this, uh, no, has no, this no. Reaction, I think Sixers kind of legend. <laughs> Sixers legend. We claim okay. I'll get. I'll give you Tim Thomas, the goalie. That one, the racist. No, one. no, 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 yes, no, no. I guess we should acknowledge that is the other Tim Thomas that I didn't want to talk about. Uh, the 2011 Stanley Cup Finals are a farce. But before he was a Sixers legend, I want to talk about the cool Tim Thomas, who was a legend in Patterson, New Jersey, where he came from. Now, one thing that is clear, I think, on this show is as we have looked at guys, it's hard to predict a guy from the start. There's not a, a identical making that you see over and over again, but he has really the kind of start where you think it almost would be impossible to be a guy because of the company he's keeping, because of what he's doing. So growing up, he is an absolute star at the prep level while he is at Patterson Catholic. And it is not for nothing that he's getting any attention because not far from Patterson, New Jersey, there's another really, really good prep athlete at the time in Lower Marion, Kobe Bryant. And the two of them, they're squaring off in the 96 McDonald's All-American game, the 96 Magic Johnson Round Ball Classic. They've been going at one another in AAU this whole time. And people probably still lean a little bit more Kobe. But this guy has continuously competed at these youth levels at him, growing with him, and still maintaining a strong level of hype alongside him. Now, like Kobe, Tim does think about jumping straight to the pros from prep. But just days before the May 12th deadline, he instead declares he's going to go to Villanova. He's going to get thrown from Patterson over to the Philadelphia area. And he's going to more or less slot into where Kerry Kittles had been in the lineup the year before. Nova is in the fifth season of their Steve Lapis era. And their starting lineup for the 95-96 season, it is uh, just a like classically Nova lineup. Two seniors from Philly, Alvin Williams and Jason Lawson, and three underclassmen from Jersey, sophomore John Celestin, and then freshman Malik Allen and Tim Thomas. A fine lineage of Malik guards at Villanova, because you got Malik Allen, you got Malik Wayans. Um, fuck, Malik Rose was Drexel. It might just be those two, but that's still quite a lineage. <laughs> Malik's not a super common name. <laughs> Here's something that I'll tell you, though. All five of those guys are going to play in the NBA. So we don't just have two of them. We have five future NBA players in this lineup. And the team is phenomenal. They go 24 and 10, 12 and 6 in the Big East. They get up to the number 20 AP ranking, a number three seed in the NCAA tournament. They go to Winston-Salem, take care of business in the first round. They lose in the round of 32, the Cal Bears. You guys know who one of the players on the Cal Bears? There's a player on the Cal Bears that is going to be a Hall of Famer. And it's Hall of Fame tight end Tony Gonzalez. I was going to say, the way you phrased that, I was like, there's something tricky here. <laughs> yeah, Tony Gonzalez was on that Cal Bears team that beat this Nova team. And with that solid season as a, a freshman star going to the tournament decides, okay, it was fun to go to college for a little bit. Now let's go to the NBA in Kobe's footsteps. And so he enters the 97 NBA draft. Unfortunately, he's not the number one Tim in this draft, but he is the number two Tim in this draft after Tim Duncan is taken first overall by the Spurs. Very well-regarded prospect, and the New Jersey Nets take him with the seventh overall pick. It looks as though we've had our first boomerang moment here. Our Patterson, New Jersey native, flying to Philadelphia, now coming right back. Until later on in that draft, along with a bevy of other picks and players, he is traded to the Philadelphia 76ers. And just as quickly as Philadelphia threw him away, he finds himself right on back at South Broad Street. Oh, I should also mention, uh, he was traded for Keith Van Horn, was the, the Sixers pick. That will be uh, important later. Love Keith Van Horn. Yeah, Keith Fuck Van Keith Horn is Van now Horn, at the Nets. 
his fucking goofy ass high socks and his fucking dumb ass spiked hair. <laughs> I hate him. I hate guys with spiked hair. So uh, impressive. Were, editorial note: Diaz is messing with his hair, which, which may or may not be spiked. <laughs> Video cannot confirm. So yeah, he's with the Sixers now. Solid rookie season makes the All Rookie Second Team. Sixers don't do too much though that year. Like Larry Brown is at this point, the head coach and the executive, he's looking at what he has here on this team. And he has a very good sophomore player this year, which is to say Allen Iverson besides he needs to better fit this squad around Allen Iverson. And so as the sophomore season for our boy, Tim Thomas starts with a bit of a sophomore slump, he says he's going to cut bait on him and he sends him in a package out to Milwaukee. Bucks figure they're basically getting like a buy low, raw high ceiling prospect. They're happy to just like let him get a lot of run time. And after riding the bench for his first 17 games that season in Philly, he is going to start 26 of his last 33 to finish out the year in Milwaukee. Good development time does lead to him then getting a bench roll still again the next year with the Bucks, but still an increase in minutes. He's getting a much higher role in the rotation itself. Moving up, 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 up as we get to the 2000-2001 season. This is, I should say, for Tim Thomas on the Bucks, by Windshare, his best season of his career. Sorry, spoiler alert, that Tim Thomas will not have a better season than 2001. But by Windshare, and by a lot of metrics, he is having a phenomenal year. He's got 27 minutes a game, 12.6 points, four rebounds, nearly two assists, and just over one and a half stocks. We love to see that. The Bucks get to go on a little postseason run with this. They have a 52-30 and 30 record. Secures them a matchup against Tracy McGrady's Magic. They take down in four games. And this sets up a date with the Hornets in the second round. Big old guys in Jamal Mashburn and Baron Davis. That is a just beautiful chef kiss guy duo that is leading the Hornets. And they are good enough to force a game seven against the Bucks, But the Bucks do finish it out on home court. And it's time for Tim to once again boomerang back. Because the Eastern Conference Finals will be opening up in his former home stadium in Philadelphia. The Bucks and Sixers split the first two in Philly. They split the next two in Milwaukee. And then they trade home wins in games five and six to set up yet another game seven. And Allen Iverson had had 46 points in game six in a loss, which I'm sure for you, Diaz, at the time was very, very frustrating. And I'm sure it was probably still a little bit frustrating that Iverson only scored 44 points the next night. Luckily, those 44 did not come in a loss. They came in a game seven win that the Sixers did manage to take. That is enough for Philly to close it out. I think that score was 121 to 98. It's a blowout. It's an absolute blowout. I, I do not have the exact score in front of me. 108 to 91. That's still pretty bad. 17 points in a closeout game. Not what you want to see. So that is what Tim Thomas experiences. That is the end of his rookie deal here. This sets up, oh, he's had a strong playoff run. There's a big free agent market for Tim Thomas this offseason. Chicago, in particular, really pushing to get him to join the Bulls. They offer him $67 million over six years. He re-signs for just a little bit less, almost in a way that it feels kind of personal, Chicago. Signs for $66 million over six years with the Milwaukee Bucks. And at the time, I mean, everyone's saying the right things. Owner Herb Cole says, Tim is a very vital part of this team and we were willing to take any steps we needed to keep him in town. None other than Ray Allen says if he wanted to, Tim Thomas could be the best player in the league. People are feeling 
all kinds of love for Tim Thomas right now. He is a, he's a big fan favorite for another thing he does, which is anytime there's like Milwaukee Bucks appearances in the community, he normally shows up with a custom Bucks jersey that says Notorious T-I-M on the back of it. Now, here's the thing about that compliment, though, from Ray Allen. When you say he could be the best player in the league if he <laughs> wanted to, you are implying that he doesn't really give enough of a shit to be the best player in the league. Well, and maybe Ray Allen was on to something there, because this is about as high as things get for Tim Thomas in the city of Milwaukee. The next year, 42-40 and 40 is a big step down from the year before, but they do still snag a playoff spot, and he's, once again, boomeranging back to the East. They go to meet up with the team that drafted him, the New Jersey Nets, here in the playoffs. Game one sets a career playoff high, 25 points, in a loss, which really kind of sets the tone for an eventual six-game series loss. And this is when the next year the organization's tone starts to kind of change about Thomas's vital role. In February 2004, they finally decide, you know what? We need to find some way to rearrange what we have here. They engage in a massive three-player trade where, funnily enough, the Bucks end up getting basically Keith Van Horn and nothing else. While Tim Thomas is shipped out from the team receiving Keith Van Horn for the second time, as he finds himself on none other than the New York Knicks. This is a midseason pickup for a Knickerbockers team that, despite going 39-43, does make the playoffs. Ooh, that Eastern Conference, baby. Thomas finds himself, yet again, going across the river as the Knicks go to face the Nets. Game one, he takes a really hard flagrant foul from Jason Collins, like knocks him on his ass, and knocks him out of the series, actually. But he keeps himself involved. He gets into a big feud with Kmart, Kenyon Martin, calling him a fake tough guy. Not only did he say fake tough guy, he specifically said Fugazi, meant to mean a fake tough guy. And I do really like this bit from Kenyon Martin. Apparently when he hears this and he's asked where that insult ranks on a scale from one to 10, he did reply zero. So the Fugazi comment doesn't seem to face him all that much. And the Nets do sweep the Knicks in four games. They drop to 33 and 49 the next year. And this means they don't even have to worry about losing the playoffs. And then right after that, 2005, 2006, Thomas is once again part of a pretty big trade. This time between New York and the Chicago Bulls, which so deeply pined for him previously. One of the worst trades in NBA history. It is a pretty bad one. It's a pretty terrible one. And it largely revolves around a medical issue for Eddie Curry. Eddie Curry had had a cardiac scare during a game the year before. And the Bulls asked him to submit to some voluntary genetic testing to see if he would have any like predispositions to things they should be concerned about. And Eddie Curry said this. Yeah, Eddie Curry flipped up two <laughs> fingers. He, he basically told the Bulls to take a long walk off a short pier and that he would not be submitting to that testing. So the Bulls feel pressured to deal him away. They deal him to New York. And one of the pieces they get is Tim Thomas, who again, a couple years ago, they were ready to throw $67 million at. They wanted nothing more than a Tim Thomas marriage. But this time, he is like a total afterthought. This is basically an expiring contract for them. And so after three games with the Chicago Bulls, he is deactivated. And months later, he is finally granted his release. This release allows him to kind of go out into the world a little bit. He's being thrown this time, I think, with someone not trying to throw a boomerang. They're not trying to get him to come back. They truly want him to go as far as he can. And he goes pretty darn far by NBA standards. Traveling from Chicago to the Phoenix Sun, they sign him for the rest of the season, and 
this is just a role that Tim Thomas steps into very nicely. He really thrives playing next to reigning MVP Steve Nash. Nash enjoys playing next to him. This is on his way to a second consecutive MVP award. Cruise into the playoffs. And then they basically set up shop in Los Angeles because their first two playoff rounds are the Lakers and Clippers in consecutive seven-game series. They play 14 games just between Phoenix and Los Angeles for like four weeks. In that Clippers series in particular, Thomas is lauded for his defense on one Sixers legend, Elton Brand. And now we reach the 2006 Western Conference Finals facing the Dallas Mavericks. In Game 5, the series is tied 2-2. And again, I do want to acknowledge that Tim Thomas had maybe made some foolish personal choices in previous playoff series. He does another one here, which is while it's a pretty close game, he decides to poke the bull and blow a kiss to Dirk Nowitzki. And then Dirk Nowitzki scores 50 points in this game, and Dallas does not drop another one on their way to closing this out in six. So like from the moment that he does that, Dirk Nowitzki just takes the entire Suns franchise and stuffs him in a trash can. But altogether, this was a, a much-needed image rehab for Tim Thomas. And with his Phoenix tenure done now, he's able to enter free agency for the first time since that big six-year deal. And he actually boomerangs back to that kind of second home that he had set up during those playoffs. It turns out he had so much fun in Los Angeles for those two straight series. He's going to join the Clippers and back up Elton Brand as he suffers a bunch of injuries over the next couple of years. And I'm going to skip through this pretty much because that's the only boomerang bit that I have here while he's in Los Angeles. But we do still have more with his career. In 2005, he is traded to the New York Knicks. This is not only significant because he is now boomeranging back to the New York Knicks. But at this time, the New York Knicks have a new head coach in Mike D'Antoni, who had been the coach of our friend Tim Thomas down there in Phoenix. So he has found his way back to the New York Knickerbockers into the hands of his former coach. But wait, it gets better. Because just a little bit after that, for the second time, he is traded from the New York Knicks to the Chicago Bulls. This is after literally just three months with the New York Knicks. He's sent to the Chicago Bulls a second time. And for whatever reason, much better go around Chicago. It's only been a couple years, but he has taken on much more of a veteran presence role. This is a very young team. They uh, actually have a player that they drafted one of the picks involved in a Tim Thomas trade earlier, Joe Kim Noah, providing a lot of strong interior presence. Derek Rose is coming into his own. And in the meanwhile, they've got this guy in the locker room who has seen a lot of it in the playoffs. And so this young Raw Bulls team, they make it to the playoffs and they do take the number one seeded Boston Celtics all the way to seven games, which is seen as a huge moral victory, which is what you say when you lose your game seven. So that, that, that series kicked ass. I don't remember any great Tim Thomas moments. That was the Derek Rose coming out party. And it was also Joe Kim Noah stripping the ball and going the length of the court while yeah. dribbling like a three-year-old toddler. Because it's like the legend whole time Joe Kim Noah and Knicks legend Derek Rose and Knicks legend yeah. Tim Thomas. So many. But like, I, I can't say enough how horrified you were with each successive dribble that Joe Kim Noah took. You're like, just give it to a guard. Just give it to a guard. It to just anyone, give it to a guard. Anyone oh, shit, else. he dumped it. Joe Kim Noah, of course, the son of our Yannick Noah, Guy Forget team pairing. I, I messed up the phrasing there exactly. I just wanted to mention Guy Forget. <laughs> weird connection to Joe Kim Noah. 
And that's about as tenuous of a connection as Tim Thomas has to Joe Kim Noah, because he is bought out by Chicago at the end of this season. He has one last stop for his career, maybe the site of his biggest professional blunder, where he blew that kiss to Dirk. He's going to now play with Dirk, boomerang back to the scene of the crime and join the Dallas Mavericks. Plays one season and halfway through has to leave the team to help his wife deal with some illness. He does sign a second one-year deal, but that first year with Dallas is actually the last one that he ever appears in because, again, he goes to return to his wife's side. And this is the point where, in the interest of our character clause, there's one last non-sports story I need to touch on real quick. So he's been married to his wife, Trisha, for quite some time. At some point in Milwaukee, he did also become very involved with another woman named Asiya Muslim. And he did eventually father a child with Miss Muslim uh, sometime in about 2004, if I've uh, been able to do the math right. Uh, this is in addition to, you know, children with his wife. And then around the time that he's traded from Milwaukee to New York, this is the first time that his wife's dealing with illness. He's had a couple other, like, tragic moments in the family, cousins passing away. So this seems to, like, renew his focus on his marriage, which is good. It is also notable that he had originally moved Miss Muslim and her son from Milwaukee to the suburbs of New York following his trade from Milwaukee to New York and then kind of cut ties with her to renew his you know, commitment to his marriage. <laughs> so then in 2005, his wife, Trisha, does find his secret phone and all of this comes out. At this point, Asiya is back in Wisconsin because she realizes he's kind of just like gone back to the family. She does file for child support. It's a big deal that's in Wisconsin because it goes until he's 21 there instead of it's like 18 in New York. I couldn't even necessarily find what the resolution was to all this because I think the tabloids stopped caring like halfway through. But it just does feel notable that like while he has certainly in some of these later years, while his wife has continued to go through hardship, been there for her, and while these moments of being a good doting husband exist... Everything else that I just mentioned does also 100% exist and is documented. He's, he's a good husband 75% of the time. <laughs> so nevertheless, that this is the end of his professional career. Solid career. 824 games in the regular season over 13 years. Seven franchises in that time, plus the eighth that drafted him, but he never played for. Almost $100 million in career earnings. Like, Tim Thomas made out pretty all right for himself, even though his biggest honor was that second all-rookie team his first year. And going back to the Nets, it, it feels weird that, like, such a flexible boomerang, that the state of New Jersey still never really managed to get him to come back. It would really kind of be, though, a very boomerang guy moment if now after all the professional career, after the trials and tribulations, someone decided to go back home and get back to their roots. Sadly, Patterson Catholic, actually in 2009-2010, same as his final year with the Dallas Mavericks. His alma mater shut down. This is tragic. He can't go back and be the coach there, as I think we would want many Boomerang guys to do. However, he did seem to try and fly back in that general direction. And the good news is, there is another nearby Catholic high school that does begin with the letters PA. And so as of this year, March 30th, 2023, he has landed as the head basketball coach for the Paramus Catholic High School in Paramus, New Jersey, just a few miles away from Patterson, New Jersey, completing his boomerang saga back to where it all began. And that is where you can find him now. And that is the story today of Tim Thomas, my boomerang guy. And Boomerang went a lot of places, but I'm here for it.
Look, before today, I didn't have a favorite New Jersey high school boys basketball program, but now I do. Go fighting paramuses. <laughs> it's so great anytime we find one of these and it's like, oh, a couple months ago he got a new job that is the perfect epilogue to this story. Sometimes the moment comes to the guy and sometimes the guy comes to the moment. And Tim Thomas in this moment was the guy for you to bring up. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. It was. He came and he returned to us at the perfect moment. But it is now a different moment. And with a different moment, I believe that means that we need a different guy. So, James, I need you to be ready for this. As we're all aware, the WNBA does not pay its players well. They've gotten a little bit better, but still nowhere near what they should be getting. And many players still need to boomerang around between the WNBA, European teams, international commitments, etc. This sucks, but it does square well with our topic today. And so does where my guy is from. James... Hit the button. Crocky. 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 Are we going down under? Are we going down under, Xavier? Today, we're going to talk about Penny Taylor. Hell yes. So Penny Taylor was born on May 24th, 1981 in Melbourne, Victoria, in the great country of Australia. I hear you trying to say it. I hear you trying to do the voice there in the back no, of your throat. So what I was trying to do was say Melbourne, right? Because I know that it's Melbourne and not Melbourne. So, you know, this is the only time I'll say it. Melbourne. Penny took the basketball early, started playing when she was four. And by high school, she was a top prospect in Australia. And at the age of 16, she earned a scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. At the AIS... She debuted for their professional team uh, in the Women's National Basketball League in the 97-98 season. This was kind of wild because this just national development program had a professional women's team for 30 years. It, it has since shut, but every top Australian prospect, or most of them, came through there for a couple of years before moving on to a different team. So in the 98-99 season, her, her second season with AIS, they won the league title... The team dominated, not thanks to Penny, but thanks to 17-year-old Lauren Jackson, who won league MVP and was murdering everybody, despite, again, being 17 years old. I'm trying to figure out if she would have lined up at AIS with Tully Bevilacqua. We are going to talk about Tully Bevilacqua later, because oh, they, yeah. do line, they do line up somewhere else. Okay. I had it written down. Okay, then I'll hold off on my Tully Bevilacqua love. So, after that second season... Penny does return home to Melbourne and signs with the Dandenong Rangers. With Dandenong, Penny finally gets the chance to, you know, be the number one, not behind Lauren Jackson. And she leads the league in scoring the next two seasons with 25.5 points per game in the 2000-2001 season and 28.5 points per game in the 2001-2002 season, winning back-to-back -back MVPs, which is impressive in a league that has Lauren Jackson in it who wins four. During this time, Penny also gets selected in the WNBA draft in 2001, 11th overall by the Cleveland Rockers, 10 spots behind Lauren Jackson, who went number one overall. It was a pretty stacked draft that also had Tamika Catchings, Deanna Nolan, Katie Douglas, and multiple other future All-Stars. Really good draft. Penny plays three seasons in Cleveland. She makes the All-Star team in 2002. She spends her off-seasons in Italy 
first with Spezia and then with PF Shio of Syria A. I do want to point out like quickly how ridiculous Penny's 2002 season was because starting with the WNBL season, she has the averaging 28 and a half points per game and winning MVP. Then on a terrible Rockers team, she is the only all-star on the team. And then she goes to the FIBA World Championships and gets a bronze medal with the Australia Opals, only falling to the U.S. in the semifinals, which unfortunately will be a theme of beating everybody other than the U.S. But that I think most basketball programs, male and female, can dream of that. That is literally understand that their ultimate objective. So prior to the 2004 WNBA season, the Rockers folded. And the WNBA had, had a dispersal draft for their players. So far in her career, Penny had already played for five different professional teams, and she was only 22. In the dispersal draft, being the best player, Penny went number one overall to the team that had the worst record in the 2003 season, the Phoenix Mercury. The Phoenix Mercury would then go on to win the draft lottery for the actual WNBA draft in 2004, where they would draft Diana Taurasi, is which is she was pretty good. That's an insane come up to get in three months. Like, yeah, we're gonna add Penny Taylor and Diana Taurasi due to the luck of the draw. The fact that it's the luck of the draw, yeah, like it makes it even more. I was gonna say honestly, the closest thing is this Liberty off season. But, well, I uh, was thinking Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin, where they got uh, of the lockout, they got a second chance at the number one pick and got Malkin after Crosby. That is probably the closest. And I mean, even then, you have to stretch it out over an entire year versus this one three-month offseason. And never forget that the NHL rigged that for Pittsburgh (laughs) because their fans were so shitty that they were like, oh, let's just give them two generational players so that their fans come back. Fuck Pittsburgh. Fuck the Penguins. They did not deserve either of them. Gary Bettman is the worst commissioner in professional sports. (laughs) Here... I used to say that with my whole heart and mean it. And I really have to think nowadays about which of the four has done the worst thing most recently. It's competitive. It's, it's surely it's, a competitive I think he's field. making a strong push this season. I think they've done a really good job this year of, of, of reasserting his dominance. But it's been a competition. I mean, to, to get us back to the topic of the WNBA, if Kathy Engelbert holds out on Philly one more year, she might claim the number one spot for me. God, I just looked. They drafted Marc-Andre Fleury number one overall in 2003. Then they got the number two pick in 2004 to get Evgeny Malkin. Then the lockout happened. And then they won the lottery for 2005 to get Crosby number one overall. So they went Fleury number one, Malkin number two, Crosby number one in three consecutive seasons. Unacceptable. But what is acceptable is the Phoenix Mercury finding a way to luck into getting both Penny Taylor and Diana Taurasi in a three-month period. Yeah, we'll allow it. It's pretty good for them. In her first season in Phoenix, Penny started 33 games, averaged 13-5, and five, and the Mercury went from having the worst record in the entire league to a 500 season. Not, you know, a worst to first turnaround, but a pretty good turnaround for how bad that team was before. She then goes off to the Olympics with the Opals, earns a silver medal, losing to, you guessed it, the USA in the finals. After that season, she goes back to Sheo in Italy and leads them to their first Serie A title in history. 
So she has now won a championship in Australia and a championship in Italy. She repeats this loop again next year. Phoenix in the summer, and then Italy wins another title with Chio. 2006, she has a bit of a down year for the Mercury, but this time she shows out for her country as she leads the Opals to their first and so far only World Cup gold medal. And despite being on a pretty stacked team, it's Penny who wins the tournament MVP, putting up 18 points, five boards, three assists per game. As the Aussies go, a perfect 9-0. They did not have to play the USA. They were on the other side of the bracket, so they did not have to deal with them. Well, and very importantly, for a fact, I know they had Tully Bevilacqua this time, providing the correct amount of glue. They did. I, I was going to talk about Tully for the 2008 Olympics, but yes, Tully Bevilacqua was there by now. Coming off that high, Penny comes to the 2007 NBA season back in Phoenix on a tear. She starts all 34 games for the first time in her career and gets a career high in both points and rebounds with 18 and 6. She makes the WNBA All-Star team for the first time in five years. As part of a three-headed monster with both Diana Taurasi and Cappy Pondexter that led the Mercury to their first ever title, with Penny putting up 30 points in the winner-take-all Game 5 in Detroit against the Shock in the finals. Now she has titles in three different countries, including the first ever for Shio and the first ever for the Mercury. After spending the offseason with another new team going to Ekaterinburg in Russia, Penny comes back to America, but actually turns down the Mercury's contract offer, saying that she needed a bit of a break. She said, it's been an extremely difficult decision and one that's taken many months to make. I'm so proud to be part of the Mercury, and I'm sorry that I won't be there to help the team defend the amazing championship that we fought so hard for last season. When I left the States after winning the championship, I had to jump right into playing in Russia. Not having any time to rest and recharge has been an incredible physical and mental strain. And you can understand that because she's played pretty much nonstop with no offseason for 10 years ever since she was 16 years old. Sure would be great if they didn't have to do that. Yeah, yeah, it would. Unfortunately, Penny does not get to, you know, benefit from possible rising salaries now, so fucking sucks. But to be fair, Penny does have a great career, so as much as she deserved more money, hopefully the WNBA can just be better in the future. So she turns down this Phoenix contract offer, says she wants to have a belated honeymoon with her husband, Rodrigo Rodriguez Heel, who was a Brazilian volleyball player. They had gotten married three years prior, and because she had been working nonstop, had never gone on a honeymoon. And then she also wanted to prepare for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The marriage doesn't really work out. The uh, couple soon divorced. But she goes to the 2008 Olympics, along with Lauren Jackson and our old friend and noted glue guy, Tully Bevilacqua. It's so funny that both in that case and in Tully Bevilacqua's case, they finally get some time alone with their husbands. And they're like, no. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually. This turns out this is not what I like. So Penny leads the Opals to an undefeated group stage. They bruise through the knockout stage with 30 plus point wins over the Czech Republic in the quarterfinals and China in the semifinals. Before they do face the U.S. in the gold medal game. And every time they play the U.S., they do lose. I'm glad they had the one time where they didn't have to play the U.S. and they got that gold. But this is now back-to-back -back silver medals in the Olympics. After this season, 
or after the Olympics, I should say, she goes back to Russia. This time, she wins the league championship with Ekaterinburg, which is now her fourth different league title. After this, she's ready to come back to Phoenix. She's like, well, I don't have a shitty husband I gotta spend time with. Might as well just go keep playing basketball. So she returns to Phoenix, re-signs with the Mercury. Fortunately, she does have a pretty bad ankle injury and misses most of the season, but she heals up like right for the end of the year, and she comes back and averages 14 points off the bench as the Mercury win the title again in 2009, including leading the team in scoring in their 121-16 overtime winning game one of the finals, and then hitting some real clutch free throws in the last two minutes to seal it in game five. I'm not saying that Penny was the most important player on those title teams, but I will say that in 2007, the Mercury won the title. In 2008, with the exact same team, including Tarasi and Pondexter, but minus Penny, they finished below 500. Then the next year, Penny comes back and they win it again. What is the common denominator? Win with Penny, lose without Penny. Why would the Phoenix Mercury <laughs> do this? Just Brian Windhorse all of this. Very peculiar. Very peculiar. <laughs> so over the next couple of seasons, Penny continues to boomerang back and forth between Phoenix and Europe. Although her European adventures were now with Fenerbahce in Turkey, where she wins her fifth different league title. In 2012, while playing with Fenerbahce, she tears her ACL. And she does get significant complications from that, where she has to undergo surgery three different times. And because of this, she does miss the 2012 WNBA season and the 2012 Olympics and most of the 2013 season as well. It's a really, really rough time. When she does come back, she injures her other knee. Uh, not as bad, but still enough where it means that pretty much both of those seasons are a total wash. But Penny's not done. She still wants to play. So she, she comes back to Phoenix, spends the entire 2014 preseason working with both the Mercury and the Phoenix Suns health staff to try to, you know, ease her back into basketball. Luckily for Penny, that Mercury's new coach was her former Opals teammate and current Liberty coach, Sandy Brondello. And they were pretty chill. So Sandy's like, don't worry, we're going to work you back you know, as easily as possible. We, we want you here. We know you want to be here. We're going to take it slow. So for the first couple weeks of the season, Penny sees some pretty limited minutes. But she works her way into game shape. And eventually she does return as a starter. From the second they insert her into the lineup, Phoenix then wins 16 games in a row, which at that point was the longest winning streak in WNBA history. And they did not lose again at home for that entire year. It ended up with the most league wins in history until the Aces did pass that with a record of 29-5. and five. That whole season, they only lost one game when Penny started. Xavier. If you won't say it, I'll say it. Penny Taylor, the most important player in Phoenix Mercury history. When she's there, hey, Phoenix has won three WNBA titles, including this 2014, this season. They do win again. They, they cruise through that playoffs. Whenever Penny Taylor is there and contributing, Phoenix has won. And Phoenix has not won another, another WNBA title since. So, you know, I'm willing to say that they owe all of their success to Penny Taylor 
And I'm not going to give any credit to Diana Taurasi or Kathy Pondexter. All Penny Taylor. For the record, that last statement was made by Xavier. She's like a Robert Ori powered by dry heat. Mm, (laughs) That's a very good, yes. After the WNBA season, Penny actually gets named uh, the captain for Australia at the World Championship. She plays great. She makes the tournament All-Star 5, and Australia does end up getting the bronze medal this year. Losing to the U.S. It it's you know it's just when they reach the U.S. they're gonna lose. It's just you hope that they either don't play them or they play them in the finals so they get a silver. But it is what it is. After 12 years away from the Australian league, after the World Championships, Penny does return to the Dandenong Rangers for the 2014-2015 WNBL season. She does this for family reasons. Um, her father had developed cancer. This was actually the second parent to get cancer. Her mother had gotten ovarian cancer and did die while Penny was rehabbing from that torn ACL in 2012-2013. And so she wanted to be close to home just in case anything happened. So she's playing at home, taking care of her dad. She's too good for this league at this point. We know this. She averages 20 points per game, makes the All-Star 5 for the season, leads Dandenong to the playoffs. During the semifinals against Sydney, They're up 15, and then she hurts her ankle. Can't play for the rest of the game. And without her on the court, they collapse and lose by eight, despite literally only being eight minutes remaining, a 23-point swing once Penny's off the court. A, a, A pretty epic collapse, but that happens when you have a player like Penny Taylor that's no longer there. Fortunately, her dad does die during this season, and so Penny says, all right, as much as I want to go back to Phoenix, I just can't right now. I, got, I have to take care of the family and take care of all these affairs. So she sits out the 2015 WNBA season. But after such a tough year of dealing with all of that family tragedy, where does Penny go? She goes back to Phoenix for 2016. And she plays one last season, averaging 13-4-4. and And when she's retiring at her last game, Diana Taurasi called her the best teammate and one of the best players ever. But Penny can't stay away from Phoenix. Five months after her official last game, she gets hired as the director of player development and performance for the Mercury. Mercury general manager Jim Pittman said, quote, As we have always tried to make clear, our organization owes a great deal to Penny, and our hope was that her post-playing career would keep her here as well. After playing her final season, it was important that she took time to consider the next stage of her career and we couldn't be happier that she's decided to join our basketball staff in this newly created player development role. Who better to learn from a WNBA champion, an Olympian, a world champion, an all-star, and one of the best people you'll ever meet? You will always have a place in our organization for Penny. They wanted her back so bad, they made up a new job for her. I just, I love the phrasing of that statement is like, <laughs> it just so happens we were creating a position. And it just so happened that she interviewed for it. It's like it's 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 very different because obviously this is good, but it reminds me of Jerry Colangelo being like, yeah, you know, when Hinky stepped down, we didn't expect it. We interviewed 80 candidates and it just so happened. My son, Brian, was the best (laughs) one. (laughs) And two months after getting this newly created role. And he did surprise Mary Diana Taurasi. They are one of the greatest WNBA power couples of all time. It's fucking fantastic. Their, their wedding photos are so good with Penny in a nice white bridal dress and Diana in 
a just full-on white suit with white sneakers. And I love the way they phrased it. They said they weren't dating in secret. They just felt no reason to tell anyone. <laughs> they had been together for apparently eight years with nobody outside of Phoenix ever knowing. First off, hey, how much better is it that, like, Dewana Bonner and Alyssa Thomas could be like, yeah, that's that's going on. Um, but also, you know, I said in the intro to the category, how is there's always this gravitational force that these boomerangs often come back to. Good to know that, like, in addition to Phoenix, there was a more specific force. The, the force was, hey, Diana Taurasi is there. <laughs> but it, it, it works. I mean, that is a lot of back and forth between Phoenix, Europe, Australia... And it helps that you have a good team that you're winning for and a girlfriend slash now wife who is possibly one of the three best players in WNBA history. So do love that. Within a year, Penny had given birth to their first child, Leo. After taking some time off to recuperate, Penny comes back to the Mercury as an assistant coach for the 2019 season. Uh, New role, not the player development one. This one is full-time assistant coach. But prior to the 2020 season, which was delayed because of COVID, Penny did decide that, you know, she wanted to be a full-time mom. So she does officially step away from the Phoenix Mercury. Since then, her and Tarasi have had another kid, a daughter named Hila. And who knows, maybe in a couple of years, we will see Penny just boomerang herself back to the Phoenix Mercury. But for now, I'm sure that her and Diana are just are going to be happy spending some time together with their children, and not having to deal with basketball for a little bit. No, I feel like as soon as Diana's back home, that's when Penny gets to return. <laughs> I feel like they worked out. I was like, all right, look, you're, you're still on the court. I respect that. Only one of us can be there. Soon as you're done, it's my turn. We see Penny take a head coaching job in like two months. Watch them just like take turns. Like, okay, you be the head coach of the Mercury this year. I'll raise the kids. And then they just flip-flop the next year. Our head coach is Penny Taylor and Diana Taurasi. Yeah, could you imagine? That'd be so... See them together on the sideline, like with a kangaroo pouch, just carrying the kids. Co-head coaches. I love it. But that's Penny Taylor. A boomerang guy, if I ever saw one. But we do have one more person that we need to talk about. Diaz. Much much like a boomerang. Bring us home. I'll try to bring us home. And... Look, it's tough because the Australia tie-in with the Boomerang, that's a, it's a real nice touch. I have to give it to you, Xavier. It's really good. But I think I have a pretty good candidate to go up against that. I want to talk about a guy in the baseball world. And baseball is a sport that is full of rich characters. And there's nothing we love more than a recurring character. You don't get a chance to recur in baseball unless you're any good. And for the record, this guy is a four-time All-Star. He is a one-time AL Strikeouts leader. He's a one-time World Series champion. But the stat that he's most proud of, as he would put it, he's most proud to have had, quote, more terms in Washington than President Roosevelt. Today, we got to talk about, he's not a clown, but his name is Bobo. We got to talk about Bobo Newsom. First of all, I mean, Bobo, just a throwback to the day when baseball names meant something. Bobo yeah. is a fantastic name. This for used a to be a proper player. country. We used to have respect and dignity and Bobos. Return. And but it's important to note Bobo was not his given name. He was born Lewis Norman Newsom on August 11th, 1907, 
in Hartsville, South Carolina to Quilleen Bufkin Newsom and Lillian Holmes Hicks. I, okay, I couldn't tell as you were saying Quilleen Bufkin. Like, Dad or mom? Now I'm going <laughs> to need to hear what the other one yeah. is. I, I was very curious myself. Yeah, Qu- Quilleen was the father. Uh, Lillian was the mother. And they grew up on a farm. So, you know, dad was a farmer, obviously. Lewis at the time is going to help out. But Lewis already gets a nickname in his upbringing. But it's not Bobo at this time. He's just Buck. So for right now, we're talking about Buck Newsom. Buck does a lot on the farm, but he also plays a lot of baseball, as any kid's going to do. He is the starting shortstop for his high school teammate at Hartsville. And one day he sees that the starting pitcher is struggling and he just goes to the manager and says, hey, how about I try that? And so begins the pitching career of Buck Newsom. Things were uh, so does, simple back then. Exactly. He was just like, hey, I can do that. I can, I can throw the ball pretty straight. So he gets the, this is the beginning of his pitching odyssey. Junior year, he does pretty well. Unfortunately, during his senior year, a bit of tragedy does strike the family. His mother passes away. Uh, she dies in a car accident. So he's dealing with that going into senior year, but he still does well enough that he gets some attention from a local prep school. And after graduating from Hartsville, he goes to play for Carlisle Prep for a year. Spends one year there which is also in South Carolina. And then the next year, in 1928, he makes his pro debut at the age of 20 for the Raleigh Capitals, uh, who play Class C ball. In his first five starts, he loses all five of them. And they say, whoa, buddy, we don't think you're ready for Class C yet. They send him down to Class D in Greenville. Greenville's a little bit of a better fit for him. He goes 15 and six through the rest of the year. And based on that, he starts the 1929 season in Class B with the Macomb. Is that how you say that town in Georgia? Macon? Macon. Oh, Macon, Macon, Macon. Georgia? Yeah, for Macon, Georgia uh, for the Macon Peaches. And he does pretty well for Macon. He goes 19 and 18 with a 387 ERA. And this is enough for him to get that fabled September call up to the Brooklyn Robins. They're not the Dodgers yet, but it is that same franchise. He gets to call up to the Brooklyn Robins. And his major debut goes kind of like his Class C debut did. He's going to get three starts, and he's going to lose all three of them. He has an ERA over 10. And so after that, they're like, you know what? Maybe you weren't ready yet. We're going to let you cook a little more in the minors. Spends most of the 30s down in the minors. But he does boomerang back up to the Robins again at the end of September. Across two appearances, three innings, he gives up no runs. So he has a 0.0 ERA for a second stint. All of 1931, he spends in the minors. Until 1932, eventually his contract ends up with the Chicago Cubs. He gets called up to pitch just one inning in all of 1932. Gives up one hit, no runs. And now he's kind of feeling like he's to pull from B-Ball Paul, as we mentioned earlier. He's stuck in the mud. This mud in the Midwest and in the Northeast is just not treating him too well. So he decides to try his fortunes out West. He's going to sign with the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League at this time. He dominates in this league. Across the whole year, he goes 30-11 and 11 with a 3-1-8 ERA. And this is back at a time where the unaffiliated minor leagues would then have a draft into the MLB. So based on that one season playing for the LA Angels, he gets drafted to the St. Louis Browns. And 
This is which, with the full endorsement. This is technically Orioles legend Bobo. This is Orioles legend Bobo. He's now you know boomeranging back to the bigs. He's got his first opportunity. He has the full endorsement. And in 1934, he's not going to waste any time. He's going to lead the league in two categories for 1934. He's going to have 149 walks issued, and he's going to have 20 losses. Both of those are league highs for 1934. 1935, he knows, all right, look, that was a bad start. But Bobo's got something to prove here. Excuse me, Buck. Still Buck. We're still Buck. Still Buck. Buck has... My apologies. Orioles legend Buck then at this point. This is still Second Buck. Second best Buck in Orioles history. <laughs> and he look, says, look, you know, the Buck stops here. It's time to turn it around. And he drops all six of his starts to open the 1935 season for the St. Louis Browns. They said, look, we've seen enough of this guy. Bye-bye, Buck. We're going to trade you to the Washington Senators. Here's where Buck Newsom starts to make his mark a little bit. Uh, firstly, he, he's making his mark in the clubhouse. He's the new guy in town, and he's never been really good at remembering names. So everybody he bumps into, he kind of just like, oh, hey, Bobo. How's it going, Bobo? Good to see you, Bobo. Because he just calls everybody Bobo and is not learning anybody's names, they start like giving it back to him. And this is how Bobo comes to be his nickname. So the name that he gives boomerangs back to him and now he is, in fact, Bobo. I appreciate the trolling nature of this nickname. I'm just mad that one time parents were correct that you can just treat it as a I'm rubber, you're glue thing. It's exactly what they did. And it, and it worked out. But he's kind of like this jovial, bit of a funny guy in the clubhouse. But at the end of the day, they know he led the league in losses last year. They know he lost all six of his starts in St. Louis. Like, you're going to have to show us something on the field, Bobo, if you're going to endear yourself to us. And it's a May 28th start early in his time with Washington that really endears him to his teammates. In the third inning, he takes a line drive off his knee, falls down. He limps back to the mound. The manager comes out to check on him. And like, how do you feel? He says, I think it's broke. And then the manager asks if he wants out of the game. And he says, are you kidding? I said, it's broke. I didn't say I was dead. He grits out the rest of the inning. And when he got back to the dugout, he sits down. He solemnly nods his head and he says, it's broke. He would repeat this ritual six more times in the game because Bobo pitched a complete game in this outing. His teammates are like razzing him because they're like, dude, there's no way your fucking knees broke. Like you wouldn't be able to stand. But each <laughs> inning he goes back, sits down. It's broke. I mean, yet and again, we used to be a proper country. We really did because when he would get an x-ray the next day, it would confirm that he had in fact broken his kneecap and pitched an entire game on the broken kneecap. Misses about like a month and a half. He's back like a lot quicker than you think somebody would be from a broken kneecap. And for his time with Washington this season, he finishes with an 11 and 12 record and a 4.45 ERA. But he's kind of becoming like a legend in Washington. So much so that when they welcomed the New York Yankees to opening day in 1936, he is the opening day starter. And President Roosevelt is in attendance to throw out the first pitch. <laughs> it's a scoreless game in the third inning when he gives up a sharply hit ball down the third baseline. But there's a great diving stop by Aussie Bluge, and Bobo is just in there like, wow, what a nice play. And as he's standing here admiring the play, he forgets that the pitcher's mound is between third base and first base. Therefore, he must duck if the throw is going to get past him. He does not duck. It hits him square in the jaw. And again, this he falls to the ground. Chose to put in front of the president. 
They I'm knew convinced. he was coming. They're like, yes, send him out to the mound. I'm convinced that so many of like pre-modern era baseball stories had to have been made up. It's just a conspiracy by like the archivists and the story to be like, how much shit can we get people to believe by just saying it wasn't, there was no television, so no one could see it. I mean, we can we can go back to, to Babe Ruth's call shot in the 27 World Series if we want to talk about some stuff like that. But nonetheless, listen, it's it's on his Sabre page. And if it's on his Sabre page, I think we <laughs> as baseball fans can take that to be the gospel. But, you know, again, so he gets hit square in the jaw. He falls down and the manager comes out and is like, whoa, buddy, like, you OK? And Bobo said, when the president comes to see old Bobo pitch, he ain't going to let him down. He stays in the game. He again finishes off the complete game, and it is a one nothing shutout of the New York Yankees on opening day from Bobo Newsom. This is the most patriotic I've felt in a long time. USA, USA, USA. And for the first time, Bobo Newsom for this 1936 season does finish with more wins than losses. He goes 16 <laughs> and 14, but early into 1937, the Senators. They, they, you know, they could use some cash, so they send him to the Boston Red Sox. He has a pretty successful season here, but in the following offseason, we would now see his first boomerang within the major league ranks back to the eventual Baltimore Orioles, the St. Louis Browns. 1938 is a bit of a breakout year for Bobo. He wins 20 games for the first time. He leads the league in innings pitched. And let's remember the time. It's 1938. How many innings do you think he pitched? 320. I'll go 360. Xavier is the closest. It was 329 and two-thirds innings. Price is right rules. Oh, also just much closer. (laughs) Yeah. And also closer. He makes his first All-Star game this year. And he also finishes fifth in MVP voting on the back of all those innings pitched. The winner is Jimmy Fox that year, but old Bobo does finish one spot ahead of Joe DiMaggio in MVP voting for the 1938 season. 1939, he again makes the All-Star game, but it's not without being traded mid-season to the Detroit Tigers who are trying to make a pennant push. Makes the All-Star game, doesn't finish anywhere in MVP voting this year. And also the Tigers in this pennant push for the 1939 season, they don't quite get there. But it's 1940 where Bobo would deliver the best season of his career. He goes 21 and 5 with a 2.83 ERA. He gets another All-Star bid and he finishes a career best fourth in the MVP voting. Hank Greenberg won that year. Joe DiMaggio came in third. But he did beat out Schoolboy Rowe, who finished seventh in MVP voting for that 1940 season. We all Look remember Schoolboy Rowe. <laughs> Look at all those innings that he ate. They Jordan Lyles eat your heart out. Jordan Lyles would have been like a 50-time Cy Young if he pitched in the 20s. <laughs> they, would have been, they would have invented the award while Cy Young was still pitching and given it to Jordan Lyles. It would, in fact, be called the Jordan Lyles Jordan Lyles award. Jordan Lyles is just a one-man rotation for like an 80 and 82 <laughs> team, but he throws every single game. It, just it, every it, game is 9-7, to seven, night after night. Add in Kent to Colby, the rubber band man, as the only reliever, and it's just Jordan Lyles and Kent to Colby. That's all you need. That's all you need right there. But again, so the Tigers acquired Bobo in pursuit of that pennant, and for 1940, they do win the AL pennant. 
So they get matched up against the Cincinnati Reds. And wouldn't you know it, they give the ball to old Bobo in game one. And his father, again, family's from South Carolina. They don't even know where Bobo's pitching half the time because he's on the move so much. But they know it's game one of the World Series. His dad makes the trip into Cincinnati. And Bobo goes a complete game, gives up only two runs and a 7-2 win. And it's only the second time that he ever pitched in front of his father. Unfortunately, that night, Quillen suffers a heart attack. And later the next morning, would die and pass away from he, his heart attack. He got so excited watching his son pitch in the World Series, he died? Suffered a heart attack and died the next day. A lot of dead parents in, in today's guys. And, like, honestly, that's a solid way to go. It's I, your, your, Maybe your not son the way. is up. Maybe the, the timing is good. Now, ideally, after your son wins game seven of the World Series, right? Well, no, you but, need to be the motivation. Well, of course. And right. You know, so the family would retreat back to South Carolina for the funeral. But Bobo stays with the team. And he does get the start in game five uh, with the series tied 2-2. And he would proclaim to the press beforehand that he was going to win this game for his dad. And once you know it. Bobo goes out there, goes nine shutout innings, and the Tigers take a 3-2 lead in the World Series as it goes back to Cincinnati following that 8-0 victory. The bats fall asleep in game six. They lose 4-0. And seeing those bats struggling, Bobo knows we're going to need another O on the board if we're going to win this one. So on one day's rest, Bobo says, give me the ball. And the press would ask him before the game, he said, are you going to win this one for your dad? He said, oh, no. I think I'll win this one for old Bobo. Bobo again goes the distance. He does give up two runs, and the Tigers only score one as the Reds take the 1940 World Series in seven games over the Detroit Tigers. That's disappointing. It's, I, 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 as I was reading in the Sabre page, I was like, tell me the Tigers won the 1940 World Series. It was close, but it was no cigar. But again, this is, look, it, what a tumultuous season for Bobo. He has... His greatest season as a pro, statistically, in terms of team success, his most successful season. But he also is dealing with, you know, this tremendous loss. He has a whole offseason to stew on it. And Bobo chooses to lean into exactly who Bobo is coming into 1941 spring training. Buys a new flashy sports car uh, and he drives into spring training with this. He has outfitted the car with a flashing sign that simply reads Bobo. (laughs) This is getting to a point where can can you be too committed to something? Because I'm this, I'm almost getting to that point where he's too committed to Bobo. It's good that he didn't exist in the time of social media because he would get overplayed then. This it, is it, good look, because you would only be able to hear about him in other cities if he was this insane at that time. Nowadays, right. we'd see him on Instagram constantly and we would be sick of it. Well, and... I, 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 this is probably as good as time to any mention that he is, as much as he loves to hype himself up and he would say, oh, old Bobo's on the mound. Don't worry. We're going to get a W in the win column. He's also like beloved by most of his teammates. Hank Greenberg, uh, his Tigers teammate, would always note he was like the one person who was like, hey, maybe don't haze the rookies. He would insist on taking them out to meals while they're still on their meager rookie salaries. Very much beloved by his teammates, although very also braggadocious, one could say. He shows up for that 1941 spring training with his big Bobo sports car. 
and he regresses back to old Bobo. He once again leads the league in losses. He goes 12 and 20. Coming off of this, you know, obviously very disappointing season. And for that 1941 season, he earned a pretty solid salary of 45000 Very good money for the time. But the general manager came to him in the offseason and said, look, Bobo, you had a bad season. We're going to have to cut your salary. We're going to have to half that down to 22 and a half. Bobo was a very straightforward person, though. And he very quickly said, hey, wait a second. Didn't Commissioner Landis investigate the team and we had to release 91 minor league players because you broke all these rules? Are you taking a pay cut? And the general manager didn't like that too much. So he decided to boomerang Bobo back to the Washington Senators. He's going to send this pinky commie comrade Bobo all the way back to D.C. Send him on back. And this is stint number two for the Senators. He spends most of 1942 there. Gets up to 113 strikeouts for the Senators and 30 starts before they then decide to boomerang him back to Brooklyn. So he's now going to play for Brooklyn again. The 113 strikeouts that he registered before the trade were still enough to lead the American League for 1942. 113 led the American League. What a time to be a ball player. No three true outcomes. Well, probably because of his broken knee, he's not going to, you know, where a lot of the other ball players are going. Right. No, he's not as mobile. He can't really make it there uh, along with his teammates. The 1943 season, he again starts with Brooklyn and kind of butts heads with the manager at a certain point. The manager, uh, Leo DeRocher, called for a pitch to be high and tight with a 2-1 count. Bobo's like, why would I throw a guaranteed ball on a 2-1 count? That's ridiculous. So they get in this dispute, and it somehow gets so heated that Leo DeRocher suspends Bobo for the rest of the season. And this is like early on in the year. Bobo mocks him as soon as he gets, as soon as he gets suspended. He's like, Go for it. Not going to stick. Guarantee it won't stick. Teammate Archie Vaughn would then go to DeRocher in the clubhouse and he would roll up his jersey and his pants and his cleats and he would hand them to Rocher and tell them to, quote, shove it up his ass. Other teammates would also speak up and the suspension was very quickly lifted. But you don't really come back from something like this, right? You can move on, but you don't really move on. So the Dodgers have had enough. And they said, you know what? Let's send him back to St. Louis. So he's going to play for the St. Louis Browns now. You're keeping track. We're now at three stints for St. Louis. We're at two stints in Washington. And we're at two stints in Brooklyn. He only plays a few games for St. Louis, though, because they already know what his whole deal is. It's kind of a bit much for them. So they send him back to the Washington Senators in the same season. So we're now up to three stints for the Browns, three stints for the Senators, two for Brooklyn. Sounds like Bobo at this point is the type of guy that you just, you can only handle him for a short stint before it's like, all right, Bobo, you got to go somewhere else. Please, please, God. It's it's interesting that he is such like, as Diaz has described, a pretty big clubhouse presence, yet can't last in any one clubhouse for too long. Like, people need a taste of Bobo, but they just want an appetizer of Bobo. They don't want an entree. Well, I, what it really comes down to is teammates generally love him and management generally hates him. That's kind of what it comes down to. I mean, just think about if you're his teammate, you know that you could do whatever you want without getting in trouble. 
because Bobo will do something worse, and they'll be too busy hating Bobo to recognize that you did something bad. Just always on double secret probation. And again, never for anything that is actually nefarious. Like, it's just Bobo being Bobo. It's Manny being Manny. It's Bobo being Bobo. So he plays that season with the Senators. He finishes off the year. In the offseason, they decide to sell him to the Philadelphia Athletics. 1944 season, he makes his final All-Star game in this year. 1945, he would again lead the league in losses for the fourth time. He was 8-20 and with the Athletics. 1946, he knows he's got a little bit something to prove here. So he starts off 3-5 and five with a 3-3-8 ERA. Very solid numbers, but the Athletics have seen enough, so they decide to trade him to the Washington Senators. It is now his fourth time playing for the Washington Senators. The fourth time is not the charm, though. He would finish the 1946 season, get about halfway through the 1947 season, and the Yankees needed another extra arm to help power them to get another World Series, so they decided to buy Bobo from Washington. Pretty solid numbers for the regular season with the Yankees. He goes 7-5 and five with a sub-3 ERA as they win the pennant and go on to face the Brooklyn Dodgers. He starts Game 3, which he does lose. Comes in and pitches scoreless relief in Game 6 in a loss for the Yankees. But the Yankees go on to win that 1947 World Series in seven games over the Brooklyn Dodgers. And finally, Bobo gets his He ring. only plays in losses. Only in losses in the World Series. And that fact, coupled with the fact that he also joined the team at the halfway point, and the Yankees, I don't know if you knew this, James, can kind of sometimes be a scumfuck organization. I'm sorry to say it, Xavier, but they can't because they only give Bobo a three quarters share of the World Series winner pot. He doesn't I thought get you were going to say of the ring for a second. I thought I was picturing well, like a ring that was cut in quarters. Well, James, when he would go to get fit for the ring, they would ask him the size and he would say, just make it three quarter size. That's all I'm worth around here anyway. So Bobo beats you to the joke. Yeah, there we go. He does stay in New York for his age 40 season, but it's not for the Yankees. He's going to sign with the Giants. He goes 0-4 with a very nearly nice 4-2-1 ERA. But it's the age of 40, and his career is you know, starting to wind down. But he still wants to play. He still thinks he has something left in the tank. So he signs with the Washington Senators minor league affiliate, not with the Senators. Essentially, he made a call to the Senators saying, can I get a training camp invite? And they said, no, but our Chattanooga affiliate could really use somebody to help him sell tickets. Would you mind going to Chattanooga and play for them for a bit? And hey, if you look good, maybe we'll call you up. He goes in with a point to prove. He goes 10 and 7 in the first half and gets voted into the Southern Association All-Star game at age 41. But he, again, we've, we've gone over it. He butts heads with management. And... The owner, Joe Engel, of the Chattanooga Lookouts, he doesn't think he's doing enough to speak well of what Bobo's doing and to try to get him promoted back up. So on July 13th, the team is about to board the train for a road trip, and Bobo says he no go. He said, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not getting on the train. I'm done with the team. And his manager and his teammates are incensed. They said, look, Bobo, if you don't get on this train, we're done with you. And Bobo's like, that's great, because I quit. Then Angle calls him and says, what the hell is this? Bobo, he's like, I'm quitting the team. 
And then Angle says, you can't quit the team. You're suspended. And Bobo says, all right, cool. The suspension lasts about 10 days. And eventually, cooler heads do prevail. Bobo rejoins the team. And after an August 9th doubleheader in which Bobo would go the distance in both wins, he would be carried off the field by his teammates. What a horrific thing to do to a 41-year-old man and his <laughs> arm. I mean, that's the only way you're going to go from standing the team up outside the bus to getting carried out on their shoulders is throwing 18 straight innings. He had to do something to earn his way back into his good graces. And, you know, it was good enough that he was allowed to stick around in Chattanooga for a couple more years. Uh, he would play three seasons in total in Chattanooga, which would be a great end to his career. But the Washington Senators love what they saw. And so at age 44, they call Bobo up one more time. For the fifth time, Bobo Newsom is a Washington Senator. He does start the 1953 season with them as well in his age 45 season. Before, we got to get one last boomerang back in. They're going to send him to the Philadelphia Athletics. He goes 2-1 and one with them. And he finally does call it a career. Trading and trading for a 44-year-old is buck wild. 45-year-old. 45-year-old. Being on either end of that trade is insane. What's the longest length of time that Bobo was ever on one team? We go to Wikipedia. I believe it is three seasons. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so from 35 to 37 on the Senators and from 39 to 41 on the Tigers from 44 to 46 on the Athletics. So those are all tied for his longest stint with one team. I, I almost picture Bobo as someone just trying to throw it away, but unlike a boomerang where you're wanting it to come back, he's just coming back on his own. Like, no matter how hard you try to throw to get him away, he just shows up again anyway. It's like the, the, the Simpsons meme of the bar where he throws out the drunk and then the drunk just appears back behind him again. Look, he's a, he's a D.C. careerist. He's done some local municipal elections that he helped out with in Philly. He's done some stuff for like the national DNC in Brooklyn. He's worked in some like battleground state stuff in St. Louis, Missouri. This all makes perfect sense, but obviously he has to come back to the Capitol. He always ends up back in Washington. Uh, so he, he retires at the age of 45. In his post-baseball career, he would wed twice. And he would run a restaurant in his hometown of Hartsville. Unfortunately, at the age of 54, liver disease would kick in and Bobo would pass away from cirrhosis of the liver. But to recap Bobo's career, he's a four-time All-Star. Twice in the top five of MVP voting. He's a one-time World Series champion. He's the 1942 AL strikeout leader. He is a four-time AL losses leader. He is a two-time AL walks leader. He's a one-time AL wins leader. He's a two-time Brooklyn Dodger. He's a two-time Philadelphia Athletic. He's a three-time St. Louis Brown slash Baltimore Oriole. He is a five-time Washington Senator. He is a one-time broken kneecap complete game pitcher. He is a one-time broken jaw complete game pitcher. And he is... An all-time guy, Bobo Newsom. So I'm doing a quick check to see how many U.S. senators have served six or more terms. Because those are clearly the only people that can stand against Bobo Newsom. I think there's a lot. It's like 40. 
that's kind of upsetting that these decrepit people just keep doing that. Yeah, it, yeah, I am upset with the answer that I have found. Right. Bobo yes, Newsom famously, is definitely my favorite five-time senator. And fa- famously, those five terms in Washington are one more than FDR served. So he did, in fact, have more terms in Washington than but President were, Roosevelt. But were they 12 years total? Do you go, think there do you think there's some real like political sickos who sit around and try to say that like if FDR didn't die he could have run for a fifth term? Oh, definitely. Like, definitely. Like just people going through the the what ifs of that and like trying to figure out the warp and and war of FDR. Of of his 20 seasons career. in Major League Baseball, he played a, eight of them. He played Okay, so he had less in time in Washington than FDR. So It is it is notable to say, uh, just a couple other things to throw in. Though he lost more games for the Senators than any team, his worst winning percentage was with the Philadelphia Athletics. Makes sense. Uh, he's also <laughs> one of the 100 winningest pitchers in baseball all time. But his 222 losses make him one of only two pitchers to win 200 games and still have a sub-500 win percentage. That's a pretty good specific record. Our, our friend Craig Goldstein would appreciate if that minimum number of qualifiers. It was uh, so the other is Jack Powell, and he also very nearly could have been one of only two pitchers to have faced both, both Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle. That distinction goes to Al Benton. Bobo did face against Babe Ruth in 1934, but did not get a chance to face against Mantle in 52 or in 53 as Mantle sat the game. That so so it's a stat that he could have done this, but he didn't actually. So there is no stat there. Mickey, 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 Mickey Mantle dot Bobo Newsom. <laughs> no, the, the X stat is that there should be one more factoid than actually scored for Bobo Newsom. Yeah, there, there, there should be. There should be. But no, that, that's Bobo. Look, he might have a name like a clown. He might have acted like a clown. He did amuse me. I hope, though, that he has... It, mm, how do I want to... Damn. I lost that. <laughs> got one. Well, I thank got you, one. Here's, here's, no, here's a chance for Bobo to get one more interesting factoid. Let's see if we can make him a Hall of Guy inductee. But first, he does have to pass through an interesting crucible, on one hand, Tim Thomas, and on the other hand, Penny Taylor. And I mean, we gotta say... Xavier did bring the only person from the nation, continent, however you want to go, of Australia. Crocky! 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 If we want to pay tribute to the actual boomerang of boomerang guys, it has to be Penny. But I think it's important to talk about, I feel like all three of these are a little bit different. Where Penny, it was boomeranging back to one specific place pretty much every year. Yeah. Uh, with Bobo, it was everyone just kind of throwing him around and then him just showing back up again, a la Barney from The Simpsons. I thought I was uh, with you. And then with Tim, it was really just bouncing between, like, four specific places. It was really a lot of Chicago, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, just bouncing between those four. So it... it all of them are slightly different in how they, you know, decided what is being boomeranged. So I, I, I do think there's a distinction to be made there. And it really just, James, this was your topic. You know, 
based on the way you interpreted it, you know, which we would see from your Tim Thomas discussion, what do you think is the best fit? I think the consideration with Penny Taylor does have to acknowledge that part of her, you know, trek that results in regular returns to Phoenix is just kind of a natural outgrowth of the women's professional basketball infrastructure. Like it is necessary for the majority of them, even if they remain with one professional club. I mean, she only had the two, if I'm not mistaken, she only had Cleveland and Phoenix. Yep. Um, and you know, left Cleveland cause it stopped existing. So like there's, there's no, there is a set home and that set home doesn't change at any point. Uh, that's also at the same time coupled with a constant national team participation that I think also provides another kind of lodestone. So there's a lot more consistency and less leaving in return, even if there are aspects of that with her, you know, taking time off and having injuries to deal with. So that that is definitely part of Penny Taylor's that I think you kind of touched on in what makes her fundamentally different from the other two. I I think. I'm considering both the idea of a boomerang and a homing pigeon here. Like, you know, homing pigeons work because you have them set to return to a place and then you take them somewhere else and they come back to that place. There is a way that even in, I mean, Bobo's very earliest career, I don't know if you guys noticed, his, you know, one of his first professional teams was the Raleigh Capitals. There was something in him that was no matter how hard Washington tried to get rid of him, no matter, you know, the value that he provided to other teams in, in having to weigh like how much management did clearly hate him with how much they just weren't allowed to get rid of him because no one else would stand for it. Yet, despite all those forces, he does keep coming back. There is the leaving and returning to a centralized place. And, you know, even though I uh, joked about Tim Thomas, like going through a whole journey that involves many stops, it's still essentially ending up more or less right at the same place in Paramus. That's one long circuit rather than Washington truly just not being able to get rid of this fucking guy. I do want to say that that is the record and he holds it by himself for the most individual stints with one MLB team. He's the only one to have five separate stints with one team. And if I can mention one other thing that I think makes Bobo a guy. Please. There was a 1949 poem written by Ogden Nash for Sport Magazine. Oh, is this the one with um, like Tinker's Ever's Chance is the double play mentioned in it? I think, yeah, it's like each letter corresponds mm -hmm. to a player. He is one of the 24 players named in that poem. He is the only one of the 24 to not be in the Hall of Fame. That's spectacular. That is a spectacular granular fact. Like I was ready to give it to you on the, the stat that you pulled out. When you said he holds the record for most non-consecutive stints, I mean, that's the most statistical way we can kind of express the idea that I brought, even if, you know, it, the, the point isn't to go out and search that, but that is the definition of what we were looking for more or less. But beyond that, I, I'm sorry. I think you've won me over with the Ogden Nash bit. Look, I do love Penny Taylor. And I do love her giving birth to Diana Taurasi's child shortly after Diana Taurasi won game five. And Diana Taurasi said, what was the exact quote? 
Diana Taurasi said, quote, hold it in, babe, I'm coming. <laughs> and then made it back for a 424 a.m. birth. I do love all that. but Almost an incredibly nice birth. It, w- it could have been incredible. Hey, I mean, that's incredible. what happened. She had, to, she had to hold it in. She did. And Penny Taylor is a team player. And I think on relitigation, Penny Taylor is going to have a very strong case. But on this day in this category of boomerang guys, we must honor the man who not one, not two, not three, not four, but five times would return back to the Washington Senators, not to mention three other stints with the St. Louis Browns slash Baltimore Orioles, two stints with the Brooklyn Robins slash Dodgers, two stints with the Philadelphia Athletics, and perhaps a Hall of Fame snub, but we will not repeat that error. We will induct him into our Hall of Guy, and we will welcome Bobo Newsom into the Hall. Welcome, Bobo, until our other Hall of Guy inductees get tired of you in about a week and throw you out. But don't worry, they can't remove your plaque. Let's see how many individual times he can be traded away from this Hall only to return. Speaking of return, to get my absolute most pedantic thought of the day out of the way, Diaz technically only returned to Washington four times. I am so sorry this is the human being that I am. Totally fair. No, that is very, very fair. Four returns. It's, it's like, um, what, what was that uh, like Chinese proverb quote? Like, fall down seven times, stand up eight. Yep. That, Be there five times, return four. Yep. Congratulations to Orioles legend Bobo Reese. And folks, we are so glad. Bobo Reese? Bobo Newsome. Why the fuck did I say Bobo <laughs> Reese? Bobo Who's Reese Bobo Reese? doesn't even know who they're voting for. I, I voted for Bobo Newsome. <laughs> Anyway, folks, you much like Bobo returned here to to listen to us once again, and we appreciate that. We also appreciate and give thanks to our producer, Craig, and the coders behind him, the musical director, Don Ham, for our lovely theme music, uh, sports reference, and all their subsidiary sites for some great numbers. And yeah, that's that's all we've got this week, folks. Congratulations to Texas Rangers fans, many of whom I'm sure are not shitty i will say it's very hard to take pride in a team where there are enough fans that are shitty that such a team is not able to for instance have a pride night but congratulations to i'm sure many decent long-suffering texas rangers fans anyway you can find all of our stuff at bit.ly slash remember that guy all one word all lowercase anything else from you guys james harden is a piece of shit (laughs) goodbye james harden do not boomerang back to philly we hope you all will boomerang with us again next week but until then i've been one of your hosts james i've been the decent long-suffering texas rangers fan xavier and i'm diaz and as the famous song from rocky goes gonna die now Xavier, are you really about to start claiming Texas Rangers fandom? Oh, hell no. I just took out the Adrian Beltre jersey for this. Hey. He is the only ethical Ranger. Adrian Beltre is the only ethical Ranger. And on, I, on Nelson Cruz's retirement day, you would say such a thing? I, I, don't, I don't associate him with the Rangers as much. He's been so many places, but I own two baseball jerseys. Only one of them is an MLB jersey, and it's not a Yankees jersey. So, you know... 
I, I am happy for the Rangers and for my uncle and all other Rangers fans that don't suck. And not George Bush. <laughs> <laughs>